God in infinity past purposed to set his love and affection upon you and then drew you to himself while we were yet sinners Christ died for us Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Today the scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 15. So if you have your Bible with you, would you turn to Romans chapter 15 as we read together verses 1 to 6. Today we're coming to our final study in the book of Romans. We spent January, February, March last year and again this year in the book of Romans and we're coming towards the end of our studies. And so we break into chapter 15 at verse 1 and you'll find it on page 1766 of the church Bible. The Apostle Paul writes these words, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give each of you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Almost exactly a year ago, I visited Germany and had a spectacular visit, particularly in southern Bavaria as I visited Augsburg and Coburg. We then moved up uh, to Wittenberg and ultimately to Berlin. And we had a great time going back in history and seeing all that unfolded in Germany. Two events stand out for me. The first was that I was invited to speak at an Augustinian monastery where Martin Luther had served beginning in 1505, and so to stand there with history all around was quite spectacular. Well, the memories come back because I brought back with me a small stone. It's triangular in shape. It looks like granite, although I'm no geologist, so it could be something else. There's nothing written on it, and I brought back two of them. One of them I kept, and I keep it on top of drawers in my bedroom where I keep a mug of coins, and when I have spare change at the end of the day, I throw them in, and the stone belongs in there. I gave the other stone to Michael with a note attached, and the note reads like this. Dear Michael, today, May the 29th, 2014, I visited the Nazi concentration camp of Buchenwald near Weimar in the German Republic. It opened in July 1937 and was one of the first and the largest of the concentration camps on German soil following Dachau's opening four years earlier. 
prisoners from all over Europe, the Soviet Union, Jews, non-Jews, Poles, and other Slavs, the mentally ill, the physically disabled, religious and political prisoners, excuse me, and also included religious and political prisoners. At the entrance of the gate, there is a slogan which translates to English, to each his own, but the figurative translation is everyone gets what he deserves. Between April 1938 and April 1945, some 238,381 people were incarcerated in Buchenwald. Estimates place the number of deaths at the camp between 50 and 56,000 people. Today, the main gate, the crematorium, the hospital block, and two guard towers are still in existence. The horrors which were perpetrated at this camp is hard to believe. It was not an easy visit. I have enclosed a stone from outside the SS barracks in the camp. If only stones could talk. Love, Dad. The reason I'm bringing that up this morning is this. That the stone in and of itself has no intrinsic value. But when you understand where it came from, when you grasp the enormity and the significance of it, then you begin to realize the story behind it. The other visual aid I bought this brought with me this morning was the coins that sit in a mug on top of my dresser. The quarters come from different states, have various state mottos and things on them. And I brought them with me this morning because there are 30 of them. And on a communion Sunday, it seemed appropriate to bring 30 pieces of silver. There's not much silver in them these days, but what they signify for us on a communion Sunday morning is truly quite something. We don't celebrate communion every Sunday. In fact, we do so formally, four times a year, quarterly. And it's a Sunday when we take our time and we focus and we think on all that He has given for us. And it's often a solemn service. It's a service that reminds us of His incredible love for us. And it seemed appropriate to bring to an end our studies in the book of Romans on this a communion Sunday. And if you come with me to chapter 15, the opening two verses are reminiscent of the previous chapter. And if you were with us last Sunday, you will remember that Paul was encouraging his readers at the heart of the empire to live consecrated lives different from others. And when he was encouraging them, when they see someone who are struggling with their faith, encourage them. When they see someone who needs prayer, get alongside them. Put your arm around them. Tell them you're thinking of them. Try and encourage them. Uplift them. And you see that in verses 1 and 2. Look at it with me. Verse chapter 15 begins, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of those who are weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And then in verse 3, the focus changes. It changes away from us, and it changes away from encouraging others, and it focuses entirely on Christ. And he writes, for even Christ did not 
please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And Paul quotes from the Old Testament book of the Psalms, Psalm 69. And in that Psalm, you find the prophecy looking forward to the death of Christ, where he in turn, speaking of God, the insults that were heaped upon you have fallen on me. And please understand, take a moment to focus on the enormity of these words, the profundity of them. Even Christ did not please himself. Please remember whom Paul is focused on. Go back into, not 1945 and all that happened in Europe and the Pacific then, and not even AD 65 when Paul is writing, but back into infinity past, where the Godhead existed in all of its splendor and majesty and glory and countless numbers of the angelic host, the cherubim and the seraphim, would bow in worship and adoration of Him, for they felt and sensed and could see for themselves the splendor and wonder and outrageous love of God. And He came from the wonders of heaven to earth, to end up on a cross for us. And think of the humility and the degradation. Think of the horror and the pain he suffered. And he did so for our sin. That's why Paul's thinking shifts at this point. Even Christ did not please himself, but came into our world because he loved us with an everlasting love. The Apostle Paul elsewhere in Scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, puts it in these terms. He who had no sin became sin for us. Now, think of that just for a moment. He who had no sin, utterly innocent, no guile, not simply was blamed for our sin, not simply was punished for our sin, but He became sin for us. Can you imagine the depths to which that sin had taken him? He became evil intensified, sin incarnate for us. And that's why on a Sunday morning like this, we gather around the Lord's table we remember His body broken for us, and His blood shed for us. I'm sometimes grateful we only celebrate communion formally four times a year. Emotionally, I'm not sure I could take more of it. 
when I think of the cross and all He endured for our sin. And Paul takes his thinking a step further. And notice in verses 4, 5, and 6, is out of keeping with the rest of the passage, what comes before and what comes next, it almost is a self-contained unit in itself. When he writes, for everything that was written in the past, remember he's just quoted from Psalm 69, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have We might have hope. Please notice what he does. For everything that was written in the past. There's an inclusive value in there. Was Genesis written for us? And Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? The book of Judges? The book of Ruth? Major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah? Lamentations, the Minor Prophets, the Book of Psalms, Proverbs, everything was written in the past, was written to teach us. If there is an inclusive value to it, there is also a contemporary relevance written for us. Allow me, please, to do a little informal survey this morning. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you've really been struggling? Praying. Prayers are not answered. Things are not going the way you had hoped. And you open up the Scriptures. You begin to read and then there seems to be a verse just tucked into the passage that you'd never noticed before, and suddenly it speaks to you, and it arrests your attention, and God is speaking directly to you from His Word. Has that ever happened to you? If so, raise your hand and let me see. Really high so I can see. Look at that. Easily the vast majority. Choir, would you agree? Oh, and many in the choir too. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here. All that was written in the past was written to teach us. And on Sunday morning, we're going to open up His Word and spend time in its pages because we know that by doing so, He feeds us and challenges us and refines us and draws us into His presence. Inclusive value everything that was written, written for us. And that's why, not simply Sunday morning, but during the week, we read the verses of Scripture. We remember its stories we call to mind and study its characters, reconnecting with its events. We use its prayers. We claim its promises. We heed its warnings. We obey its commands because we find God in the midst of His Word. contemporary relevance. And finally, notice what Paul also does. As he's writing, there is also a practical purpose. 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Through endurance and encouragement, we might have hope. Often on a communion Sunday, people will ask me later some deep theological questions. And often it will surround, Richard, what actually is a sacrament? Why do we only have two sacraments? We have, of course, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And the response is fairly clear and straightforward because Christ only instituted two sacraments in the gospel. One was baptism. The other, of course, is the Lord's Supper. And they will say, well, tell me, please, what is a sacrament? Tell me grasp what you mean. A sacrament is when we take ordinary, everyday things. We set them aside for a holy purpose. Bread and juice. There's no great intrinsic value in bread and juice. There was no great intrinsic value in the quarters of the stone. But when you understand the significance behind the bread and the juice. That's what makes it extraordinary. That's why it is a sacrament. It is holy, set apart. If it's a sacrament, then where does the word Eucharist come in? Because I hear people talk about Eucharist. And I go on to explain that the term Eucharist means thanksgiving. Earlier in our service, you would hear these words. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, and gave thanks. And when we gather, we gather to give thanks. And we also gather to remember. It's a commemoration. When I visited Berlin last year, there was a 500-yard stretch of the Berlin Wall still there. Most folks don't realize there were two walls. There was one on the west side, there was one on the east side, and no man's land in between, which often had guard dogs and mines and watchtowers every 50 yards or so, barbed wire everywhere. And the wall is still there to remember, to remember that Berlin as a city was once divided, and it's a commemoration Likewise, when we take bread and wine and we gather around the Lord's table, we remember. Take, eat, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we come with thanksgiving, we come to a sacrament, we come remembering, and we proclaim his death until he comes again. Sometimes folks will say to me, now, Richard, I hear different denominations saying different things about the bread and wine. Does the bread and wine actually change? Is that what happens in a sacrament when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Is that what goes on here? Where is the presence of God in this sacrament? Some congregations, as you know, and denominations teach that the bread and the wine physically change. 
and to become the body and blood of Christ. And for those of you who enjoy theological studies, it is called transubstantiation, and it changes. Others say, "Mm, not so sure about that, but God is truly present in this sense. The bread and wine don't change, but God is fully present in, through, and under the bread and wine, and that's called consubstantiation. And others say, no, it's, it's neither of these. It is simply a sign. It points towards the cross of Christ, and there is nothing in the bread or wine that changes, and the presence of God is not in the bread and wine. So, what do we believe as Presbyterians, as folks who are always going to come back to the Scriptures again and again to show what we believe? And remember, everything that was written was written to teach us, and that's why we come back to the Scriptures. Is the presence of God truly here in the sacrament? As Presbyterians, we say, Yes, the presence of God is truly in the sacrament, truly in the sacrament. But He's also truly present where two or three gather together in His name. I will be there among you. He is truly present. He is truly present in the heart of the Christian, indwelling by His Holy Spirit truly present. He's truly present in the Scriptures when they come to life and capture your attention and draw you into a deeper relationship with Him. Is He truly present? Absolutely. But here's the big question. Richard, if the bread and wine doesn't change, or for some do change, what changes in the Lord's Supper? Is it truly the bread and wine that change? Is God truly present in, under, and through the bread and wine? For us, it's not so much the bread and wine that change. It's we who change. Because in a morning like this, when we gather around His table, and we remember again all that He endured for our sin. He who had no sin became sin for us. We change. We come heartbroken at times, grieving our own sin, ashamed, wanting to turn and run from that sin. And on a morning like this, we change because we ask Him to forgive us and cleanse us and change us and renew us and refresh us and encourage us and give us His sustaining grace so that we might endure, keep going and persevering. We change as a result of gathered round this table. That's the significance of the Lord's Supper that which is ordinary and everyday and has no significance impacts us by telling us of what? Of Him who in eternity past, because of His outrageous love, came into the world to die for us. That's the significance of the sacrament, because it points to Him, and we as a result change. 
if you were, to push me this morning and say, Richard, I'm conscious we are coming to the end of Romans. Is there one verse that you would say sums up Romans in all of its entirety? I would have to say Romans 5, 8. If you have your Bible and can flick back to Romans 5, 8, that would be a good thing just for a second or two as we draw things to a conclusion this morning. And it begins with two of the most outstanding words in all of Scripture. Every time I read them, I'm amazed. And Romans 5, 8 begins with those two words, but God. That's the book of Romans, right there. But God. God breaks into our world. He sends His only Son to die for us. But God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Please notice exactly what it says. While we were yet sinners. Please grasp the enormity of that. He didn't die for us when we started to take an interest in Him. He didn't die for us when something in our life made us come back to church. He didn't die for us when we began to pray or wanted to understand the Bible or started reading it for ourselves to get an overall sense of what it teaches. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that means this, that when we were in open rebellion, when we treated Him with contempt and wanted nothing to do with Him and would turn and walk away from Him, had no interest or no desire, God in infinity past purposed to set His love and affection upon you and then drew you to Himself while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we never knew Him, when we couldn't understand what was going on at Calvary, He died for us. That's why we celebrate the sacrament. That's why we sometimes get tearful that's why emotionally we are involved. That's why He convicts us of our sins and then cleanses us and renews and refreshes us. And He does so powerfully, intentionally, to grant us endurance and encouragement. And for all that we have touched on this morning, we leave understanding and knowing and rejoicing because Christ died for us. Let's pray together. Father, we fully confess we will never be able to plumb the depths of all that you achieved at Calvary for us. 
Father, thank you for your amazing, outrageous, spectacular, eternal love for us, for your forgiveness and your mercy and your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Father, bless us as we move into another week. Help us, please, to follow you each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville invites you to Holy Week services Thursday, April 2nd at 7.30 p.m. for a communion service and Easter Sunday, April 5th at 8, 9, 15, 9, 30, 10, 45, and 11 a.m. More information at Easter at fpc.com.